Well, hello again, everyone. Tony Payne here. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to be with you again, although just me this week. Philip's not here again this week. It's that time of year when he tends to take a good long holiday and is away for a few weeks. And as it turns out, I'm about to do the same. This is the last podcast I'll be on for a few weeks. I'm off on leave, a combination of long service leave and holidays, and we'll see you again in early January. And because it's the last time I'll be speaking to you this year, I do want to say thank you. Thank you especially to everyone who keeps reading and listening, who keeps corresponding and discussing and getting in touch and talking about the issues that we raise here on Two Ways News. Uh, To all of those who share these ideas with others in all sorts of ways, of course, that we don't hear about, we're very grateful that you do that because that's really part of the reason we do this every week. And also to those of you who financially supported us, who are part of our supporters club, we really do thank you for making it possible. Uh, We can't do this without your support, without your prayers and without the money that you contribute. And so we're very grateful uh, for you as well. So thank you. Now, a few episodes ago, we broached the subject of work and we put forward a thesis that under the historical and technological and economic pressure of how the Western world has changed in the past couple of hundred years, we now think of work in a quite restricted and particular way as the job or career that you undertake and that you get paid for. And indeed, for many people, the activity that really defines us and gives us satisfaction and meaning in life, the thing we do with our lives. And we suggested that as we try to make sense of work Christianly, that this more restricted definition of what work is gives us some problems because the Bible thinks about work in different categories, in larger categories, with a different lens. And we suggested that in the Bible, work is the activity God gives us to do by which we live and survive and thrive. Work is an instrumental activity that we undertake to meet our needs, the needs of our family and the needs of others. And so thought of in this richer, broader way, all kinds of different activities are seen as work and especially are seen as work in the Bible. And as we think about it, In our lives, they make sense as work. And so domestic work, that is cooking and cleaning, caring for children, mowing lawns, paying bills, this is work every bit as much as the work we do when we go out and earn some money and then pay someone else to do those tasks for us. This too is an activity that meets needs, the needs of our family or perhaps the needs of others. So is subsistence work, the growing of food, or the building of houses, or the repairing of our house, or the sewing of clothes, or the knitting of scarves. These instrumental activities provide directly for needs. Because it's kind of nonsensical to say that the farmer is only working when he's growing food to sell, as opposed to growing food that his family can eat. And so that's work as well, the work we do to subsist, to survive. And of course, selling your labour for wages is also work because that activity in itself not only very often provides for someone's needs, such as, say, we're a baker who gets paid to bake bread for people, but in doing this activity, we ourselves earn income to supply our needs and the needs of others. And this reminds us that work is something we do not just to meet our needs, but also the needs of others. Work generates something. 
work generates goods or services, we might say, that are useful for our needs, for human needs, but also for others. And we suggested that seeing work in this broader sense helps us also to integrate our conception of work into some pretty major biblical themes, into the idea of good works, that is, those activities we engage in that benefit other people, and the work of the Lord, which is the particular instrumental activity we engage in, the work and labour we do to meet spiritual needs, to bring spiritual food and clothing, we might say, to others, to meet their greatest need of knowing God. Anyway, I'm kind of getting in danger here of just repeating the whole argument from last time. The point was that by rethinking the categories or concepts of work, having a less restrictive definition of what work is, it does open us up to see work in a fresh way and solves many of our issues with work. And in particular, it gives all our work in all its different varieties and kinds a profound biblical and theological and spiritual significance. Because work in all its forms is an activity in which we love and glorify and please God himself and in which we love and serve our neighbours. All the work we do, the work that we stagger off to the office to do, the work we do after we get home cooking and cleaning, the work we do in ministering the gospel to other people, the work we do in caring for our neighbours and meeting their needs. All these different works that meet our needs or the needs of our families or the needs of others are an expression of our most basic response to God and to the gospel, and that is to love and please him and to love and serve our neighbour. So work is an incredibly rich theological concept. It has enormous spiritual significance because it's the evidence and outworking of the work God has done in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a brief summary of what we talked through last time. And we said we'd come back to some of the further implications of this and applications of this richer and broader concept of work. And as it turns out, the best way to tease out those implications is simply to respond to some of the many really excellent questions and comments and emails that you sent in on this topic over the past couple of weeks. So, for example, this first one is from Brian. Brian writes, I retired from my full-time employment 15 years ago, where I earned money to keep us both alive, so we had a home to live in and food on the table. But that didn't mean I stopped working. Since I retired, I've been working every day in many various ways, some of them assisting my wife with her work in the home that she was working at for all of our married life. She may not have earned money doing it, but she worked very hard caring for our home and looking after our children as well as serving in our local community. Others are the continuation of work that I do in the garden and others are work we do in volunteering, both within the church as well as within the community. The way we see it is that we will not stop working until the day we leave this present world and go to be with our Lord either when he returns or when we pass through death to the new life. Thanks, Brian. It's a really great comment because thinking this way about work as the activities that God gives us to do in love for him and for others that meet needs and meet the needs of others, it changes the way we think about retirement, as we usually call it these days. Because where do we get the idea that we should stop working at a particular age, at 65 or 67 it now is in Australia, and put our feet up and simply rest for the next perhaps 25 years? 
the whole idea of retirement in this kind of way fits with the way we've reduced work to be that thing that we go to the office to do and get paid for, such that when it comes time for us to finish that phase of our work, perhaps when we're just getting a bit old to still do that work, then work ceases. And now all that we do from that point on is rest. Now, the nature of our work may change, of course, as we age. We may get to the point, like Brian, where he doesn't need the income from a paying job because of the society we live in, because of superannuation, because of pensions. And so he's able to pursue other forms of work to meet his needs and the needs of others. But the opportunity and obligation to work continues, it seems to me, because love of God and love of neighbour doesn't stop at 65 or 67. Now, Mike Rater has spoken recently about this on The Pastor's Heart in a very interesting interview, and I'll put a link to that interview in our, in our notes, arguing that the idea that we get to a certain age and then just engage in permanent rest, just put our feet up and do the things we enjoy and just travel around Australia in a caravan, is not a biblical idea at all. God has prepared good works for us to walk in, works of all kinds, and they may change as we age, but it's not as if we get to a point uh, when we cease doing that and when we just put our cue in the rack and stop. I'd recommend listening to Mike's discussion with Dominic Steele on that Pastor's Heart podcast. It was really quite a good interview. Now, here's a different question, one from Jeanette. Jeanette says, the definition of work you talked about as provision of needs in a context of love is especially helpful for decisions about choosing activities when not in a paid context. Yes, thanks, Jeanette. That's exactly right. And it kind of follows on from what Brian was saying. If we define work too narrowly as paid employment, we tend to then define everything else as not work, as rest or enjoyment or bludging. But if, for whatever reason, you don't need to engage in paid employment, perhaps someone else in your family is doing that, or you have the means not to do that, that's not the end of work. God has many good works that he's prepared for us to walk in. Anyway, Jeanette goes on. Some of the harder parts of work are dealing with demanding bosses, or for that matter, demanding family members, dealing with unreasonable demands and rudeness to others in work contexts. I'd be interested in encouragement as to how to respond, to make responses that honour God and are loving, yet also give feedback. Well, what Jeanette's talking about here is really the frustrations and difficulties of work, whether in the home or in the office or in the fields or in the church. We have to work with other people, unfortunately, and they have to work with us, and so as Jeanette puts it, unreasonable demands or rudeness, not to mention many other forms of sinfulness like corruption and dishonesty and greed and selfishness and theft. This will be the common experience of all kinds of work in our world. How should we respond? Well, this is a big subject, but two quick thoughts. The repeated message of the Bible to mistreatment by others is not to respond with vengeance, not to meet evil with evil, to respond instead with what is good and right, and to respond rightly and to work well whether your master's eye is on you or not, and whether he is treating you well or not. And then if you suffer for doing what is good, if you work well, even though being treated poorly, then you're walking in the footsteps of your master, who was 
led like a lamb to the slaughter, who suffered even though he did nothing wrong and no sin was found in his mouth, as, as Peter says. So part of responding in a godly way is to continue to work well and faithfully and in a godly, loving way, even when others aren't. But part of love, too, is responding with the truth. It's speaking the truth in love, to warn, to admonish, or as we say these days, to give feedback. Now, how should that be done? How and when and in what manner should feedback be given to others when they're not responding well? Well, perhaps that's a whole podcast in itself. But briefly, if you do have to say something to someone about their behavior, whether that's in the home or in the workplace for that matter, be calm, be gracious, that is, see what good can be pointed out and what circumstances can be taken into account, but be completely honest and be concrete and specific. When giving feedback, that is, when speaking to somebody in a tone of rebuke or admonishment or pointing out to them that their behaviour is really not up to scratch, don't be vague. Don't say, oh, you're always so unreasonable or why do you have to be rude all the time? Be specific. Say, when you shouted at me this morning, it not only upset me, but it shut down our conversation and it made it very difficult for us to make progress on that issue we were talking about. It's always better to be specific when you speak the truth, to name what the truth is, to do it graciously, and to do it calmly, not furiously. But that's love, to speak the truth to other people in a way that helps them. And this is, of course, just as true in the home as it is in church or in the office or on the building site. When we work, we work by talking with each other, by sharing information, by coordinating, but also by encouraging and praising each other and helping each other and by rebuking and admonishing each other and by repenting and forgiving each other. Uh, there's lots more to say on this, but thank you, Jeanette, for that question. Now, next we have an email from Jesse, which has three questions in it, all of which are worth saying something about. Jesse writes, first, how does the definition you propose fit with the work God does in Genesis 1? In this chapter, God was working, but he was not providing for any need of his own, since God lacked nothing before creation, and he was not providing for others, since there were no others to provide for. Perhaps this is in a different category, as it's God's work, not a human work, but I thought it was worth raising. Do you think God's work in creation would fit your definition? Now... Uh, God's work, of course, will be different from ours in many ways, but in particular, God is the only worker who creates the materials with which he works. Everything we work with is created for us. We, we, we work with the ground. We work the ground. We work with the material that God has created. In fact, we ourselves, the workers, are God's creation. But God brings everything into existence from nothing, and then he forms it. Genesis 1 is quite striking this way. It starts off with, let there be light, and let there be sky, and land, and sea, and so on, in the first three days. And then in the second lot of three days, God fills those different spheres of creation. He fills the sky with birds. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the land with animals and with man. Let the earth bring forth all these different things, he says. In other words, God's work in creation is an act of love to give existence 
and life and breath and sustenance to others, to every tree and bird and to every fish and animal, to every human being. God's work does flow from himself out to others, but unlike ours, it brings others into existence. It creates others and then provides a good world in which others can survive and thrive and grow. And our work, in that sense, is derived from God. It's deputized, I suppose, from God, commissioned by God. We work with the materials he's given us to do what he has called us to do, to provide for ourselves and others in all respects. Jesse then goes on to ask a second question. Does the definition you've given include the type of work Adam is made for in Genesis 2? Adam had to work in the garden, not for his own need or that of Eve, but so the garden itself would be cared for in verse 15. That's when it says that God put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. Jesse says this seems to show a kind of activity that is, in a sense, for its own sake, or perhaps for the purpose of order and beauty, but not one that has the purpose of providing for oneself or others. I could be misunderstanding the definition, but it seems that providing for the needs of the worker and or others doesn't include work for the sake of God's creation or work for the purpose of order and beauty. This is a really good question, but it has to be asked. Is it that the needs of the garden need to be met, that it needs to be maintained? Is that what Adam is put in the garden to do? Or is it that the various trees in the garden that provide food for the man are in some way the result of the man's work? That seems to be the case. Earlier on in the chapter, it says that there was yet no tree, no bush, no vegetation because God hadn't provided rain and there was no man to work the ground. There seems to be an implication that the existence of the man and his work is what brings forth the vegetation. And also the curse on the man for his disobedience was a curse on the ground that he was working so that only with toil and sweat and thorns and thistles would he now gain his bread and bring forward food from the earth. And that's presumably in contrast to what the case was before, when his work to bring forth food was not so fraught, not so toilsome and so difficult. So I'm not sure that we can separate the man's work in the garden so completely from his need for food. I think from the very beginning, the man's work in the garden, to work it and to keep it, was to bring forth vegetation, was to bring forth plants that he would eat. All the same, what about work that is directed towards the needs of non-human others, if I can put it that way? What about work that provides for the needs or protects or in some way works towards the value of animals or of trees? What, for example, of, say, a park ranger whose job is to protect the trees and animals? Now, we pay park rangers to do this because we see that as a valuable thing. And not just because parks are nice places for us to enjoy, but because we think that trees and animals and the created world in themselves are good things and are worth preserving and protecting. Indeed, because we're God's representatives in the world, because we're to multiply and fill and subdue the earth, there's a responsibility for humanity to, in a sense, rule the world under God, to have an attention and a care for the world as a whole, as an interconnected system. 
because of how God has made it to be that ordered, interconnected uh, creation. So yes, Jesse, although I do think that the work of the man in the garden can't be completely separated from uh, his working for food, I think there is a sense in which by protecting, providing for, caring for the created world, that that's part of the work God gives us to do in providing for ourselves and others. And part of the others that we provide for and look to is the world itself. In this sense, also, we could say something about art. I mean, why do we want to have artists and painters and novelists and filmmakers? Because their work contributes something to the goodness of the world and to our rest. We rest when we rest. We have full stomachs, hopefully. We rest in dry houses. We rest in warm clothes with things that we've provided for ourselves. But we also rest with music and with art and with wine that gladdens the heart of man, if I can put it like that. Uh, which kind of gets us to that discussion about rest and work. When is playing music an activity of rest done for its own sake, simply to enjoy the beauty of music and to share that beauty with others? And when might it become work that we labour at for the sake of others and for which they pay us? I think the two are distinguishable. They're obviously distinguishable, but there are also obviously some grey areas where one kind of becomes close to the other. And this takes us into um, Jesse's third question. My last question might fall into the same grey area as Philip's guitar example, but I thought it would be worth asking, does practice count as work? Let's say a person spends 5,000 hours practicing their instrument. Does the practice retroactively become work if they end up as an entertainer, or was it work all along? If that identical practice either is or isn't work simply by the outcome, it seems like the definition doesn't quite fit. To expand on the illustration, the person might be practicing intensely with the hope to someday be an entertainer, but dies before ever achieving it. That practice still seems like work, even though it has not provided anything for the person or for others. Perhaps it is the goal that shapes the category that practice would fall into. And yes, Jesse, I think you've kind of got to the answer to your own question there. I think context, circumstances and intention do shape the way we identify or understand different activities. But there is an important point lurking inside this question, and that is that work is not always successful. Work is often frustrated. We may labour and toil at something, but actually fail to meet anyone's need or our own. The example Jesse gives is of someone labouring and toiling to become a professional musician, possibly, but failing to do that. The same could be said, though, in principle, of a farmer who labours to plant a crop, but for whatever reason, fails to produce a crop. It's still work because of its intention and context, even if it doesn't actually succeed in providing for anybody's need. And so, yes, I think intention and goal does have some significant impact in how we would describe different activities and whether we would see them as work. And could the one activity sort of sort of transition from one to the other? Could it be something we do for its own sake and then as we get better at it, decide that we're going to do it as a job for work, for pay? Well, of course. In other words, to come up with a definition like this that sort of helps us to think more clearly about work, there are always going to be grey areas and edge cases, as there are with all definitions. 
but hopefully the definition still does help us in thinking more broadly and richly about what work is and not perhaps by the narrative so completely that we're given about what work is in our modern Western context. And finally, a comment from Michael. Uh, thank you, he says, for bringing out the concept of us all being full-time Christian workers, doing what we do as Christians and helping, expressing love and where, where we're able to present the gospel. Credible Christians, he says in inverted commas, have an impact for the gospel and in part overcome the awful things done over the years by the church. Yes, that's very true. Michael goes on, I have always worried about Tim Keller and his view of occupations in heaven. And then Michael tells this anecdote. You may know that John Chapman, the well-known evangelist, came many years to me as his dentist. And he used to say, Michael, there'll be no need for dentists in heaven. To which the reply was, there'll be no need for evangelists either. Which is very true and amusing. And thank you, Michael. But what you're saying here does have a significant implication to say something about. And it's kind of where I want to conclude today. Hopefully this view that we've been exploring of the value and importance of all work in all its forms as something that's done in the love of God and in the love of neighbour will help us think more clearly about that age-old question of how material or secular work relates to gospel work. Because if what we're saying is true, in one sense they are species of the same thing, of work. And they are done with the same motive and spirit, in love for God and in love for neighbour. And the work of the Lord, or gospel work, is not reserved just for some. It's work that we should all be seeking to abound in or increase in, as Paul says to the Corinthians. Abound in the work of the Lord. Do as much of it as you can. Because unlike some of our earthly material work that can sometimes be in vain, the work of the Lord is never in vain. It builds for eternity. It provides for people's most important need, their spiritual need, their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is not, should I work for a living or should I do the work of the Lord? We must all be involved in both. The better question is, how can I abound and increase in the work of the Lord? For some of us who have particular gifts or opportunities, that will mean spending a great deal of time, perhaps the majority of our time, in the work of the Lord and being supported and paid a wage by others so that we can do that, so that we can eat and feed our families. Sometimes, and the Apostle Paul is an example of this, we will work to earn our living and do lots of work of the Lord at the same time. And the label we often give to that of being a tent maker is, is named after the Apostle Paul. And for others of us, depending on our circumstances and our stage of life, we'll have to spend a great deal of our time in just providing for needs, for our needs, the needs of our family, the needs of others, and we'll have a little less time and space in our week for the work of the Lord. And perhaps for others again, like Brian, whose letter kicked off our discussion today, our circumstances will be such that we're quite freed up to spend as much time as we can in the work of the Lord because our needs are taken care of. The point is, do every sort of work in love for God and in love for others and abound in the work of the Lord as much as you can as the Lord gives you opportunity. Well, I hope that second bite of the cherry on the subject of work was helpful and teased out some of the implications. Thanks again for all those comments and questions and feedback. It's great stuff. 
and we do love uh, receiving emails and messages from you. Don't hesitate to get in touch. If you're receiving the email version of this newsletter slash podcast, you can just hit reply to the email and it's a very easy way to get in touch with us. Um, let me recommend that if you, or you're listening to this podcast and you're not uh, signed up to the email list, that you do that. You go across to twoways.news and sign up. It's free to sign up. You can get the email each week. And it's just a great regular way to receive not only the audio, but the text version and all the links that come with that uh, in the email that comes. And it's also a very simple way that you can share it around with others and flick the email to somebody else so that they can also enjoy the content. While you're there at Two Ways News, if you'd like to consider joining our supporters club, you can do that as well by clicking subscribe. And when you get to the sign up process, you can either take the free option or there are other sort of paid options that kind of supply the finances that help us to keep doing this. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks once again for being here and thank you for being here this year and for uh, the joy it's been to talk with you each week. I look forward to talking with you again next year. In the meantime, I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.